Hey everybody, Luke here. What follows is a conversation with one of my good friends, Lyndon Purcell. We often talk about stuff that goes a little bit beyond fitness, so you'll hear a little bit of that, but it's definitely relevant for a lot of coaches out there and even for people who are looking for a coach and the way we think coaching might be going in the fitness industry. So uh, thanks, Lyndon, for coming on. It's always good to chat to you, man. Uh, please let us know what you thought of the episode. Hope you enjoy it. You can always message us on social media or you can email me, luke at lucidhealthcoaching.com. Of course, if you're so inclined, we really appreciate any shares on social media or any reviews you might want to leave. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Lyndon. I'm going to hit record straight away and then I'll just chop it when we, when we need to. Yeah, mate, go for it. How's everything been? Yeah, everything has been a mixture of static and chaotic, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like it's that at the moment. <laughs> very much so. Are you, uh, you traveling okay with your sort of lack of traveling, I guess? Yeah, no, it's been pretty good, man. Um, it's obviously interesting, like getting involved in a new culture and a, and a new country and a different way of doing things. Um, so there've been some moments of stress, but it's also been moments of a lot of excitement. And uh, I think we ended up in a in a good spot. So The Hague's quite an interesting place. There seems to be quite a lot of, you know, things to do and it's quite easy to get around. Um, there's obviously a lot of expats here. So there's a bit of a, a melding of cultures and it's really funny. You go to some cafes and literally everyone in there seems to be British and like everyone's just speaking English and then you'll go somewhere else and you know, it's obviously Dutch and they, they don't speak that much English and everything in between. So it was interesting, dude. Um, so enjoying it. I think there'll be a fair bit of personal growth out of it, which is sort of what I wanted. So, yeah. That's excellent to hear. That was actually, um, I had sort of two questions top of mind mm. and one of them was, was very much, do you feel like you have uh, captured some of that personal growth already or like it, I'm sure it feels like it's beginning to take place and those, those wheels of motion are beginning to churn. Um, but yeah, do you have any, in, any insight on that? Yeah, I think it's, it almost started to happen when we were in Sweden because I actually noticed that interestingly, I was feeling much more comfortable interacting with people and that sort of stuff here in the Netherlands, having already spent five or six months in Sweden you know, in a different culture, not knowing how things worked, not knowing the language terribly well. And you tend to go into your shell a little bit when that's the case, not just when you're interacting with other people, but I think in general, because you feel like obviously you're a stranger in a foreign country sort of thing. I think that kind of permeated a little bit to all of my interactions with the world. Uh, but I slowly became more comfortable with being the odd one out in a way and uh, being able to just swallow your pride and try and communicate when you're not very good with the language or you don't know how something works or something like that. Uh, mm. And I think I've carried that over into the Netherlands. So I feel as though the transition has been relatively easier in that sense. And, and so I guess as far as a personal growth thing, I'm, I'm sure there's much, much more to come, but uh I really had to speak to, to funny and be like, well, if you think about what we've done, it's pretty crazy because we actually had never visited the Hague before 
when we rented an apartment. Um, the first day we visited this city, we were being taken around to different places by the real estate agent and being like, is this where you want to live? And we're like, I, I guess so. I don't know. You seem to think it's a cool area. Um, so, you know, if you actually, I think when you're in the moment of it all, it doesn't seem as absurd as it is, but when you take a step back and go, hang on. So I, we basically quit our in-person jobs in Sydney. We went traveling. There was a global pandemic that shut everything down. And we then basically have just moved to a different country in Europe to kind of wait it out. And in the meantime, we've done that in a, in a city that we had never visited before. Like this is, it's going to be an interesting story to tell a kid sort of thing. So yeah, it's interesting, but I think there will be much more growth to come. I think the next big challenge for us is just making connections here and the social side of things is probably something that's lacking in terms of our lives at the moment. Uh, mm. You know, so we know a couple of people here. Unfortunately, I knew a guy from Australia and they're just moving to England now <laughs> or Wales, sorry. Um, like, so we, we managed to catch up with them one day and then straight away they left. Uh, but other than that, I think, you know, the real challenge is then getting out and trying to be uh, social with people and make new friends, which is always challenging because of course, when you, when you live in your, in your home city and you've still been there, then a lot of your friends end up coming from either work or from your high school or university group. And, um, since we don't have real jobs, <laughs> uh, you know, it's going to be one of those challenging things. So yeah, there's a lot to, to still process and still to do. Oh, that's cool. Like that's, that's what a lifetime is for, I guess it's, you know, as, as you said, I'm sure there's what, to say, restate what you said that you're sure there's a, a lot of personal growth ahead of you. And you know, we would certainly be hope that's the, the case for both of us, regardless of sort of what the life circumstances are. But I have no doubt that you are going through a, uh, an enhanced period of that currently. And your uh, biographer is going to have <laughs> multiple chapters dedicated to this period of your life. I'm sure. Yeah, I bet it'll be super interesting. Uh, what's what's new on your end, man? Anything interesting happening right now? Um, I guess I'm I'm constantly trying to surround myself with interesting things, be it you know whatever that may be, books, people, ideas, mm-hmm. uh, new activities. You know, it's sort of limited and constrained in many regards currently. Um, so I guess something I've been trying to pay a little bit more attention to is and many people are doing this so it's not entirely specific to me but just the the social network that you can plug yourself into via the internet uh, i'm trying to be i guess slightly more active um in engaging with people across the internet and i've found it to be quite rewarding overall um i have probably for the most part not invested a ton of time in building any kind of community on the internet. Um, I've I've always found it to be mostly important to prioritize relationships with the the non-negotiable sort of people in my life. It's like family will be there. So up until the point that I have a, you know, pretty rock solid relationship with them, um, I've sort of always tried to put my eggs in that basket. Um, but yeah, in regards to interesting things, other than, than that, I guess that's, that's been interesting for me. Um, 
but I'm probably at the moment I'm just sort of as everyone else really is trying to make sense of how much of this is, I guess, relatively stable and permanent. And I think we sort of, we were holding this idea in our minds that this will pass, things will go back to normal. And I, the second question I was actually going to follow up on was, was what's your sort of thinking at regarding how much this is sort of normal. And I recognize that predicting the future is not exactly your forte and things like that. But I I feel as though it's the way we go about these things and the way we just conceptualize the world in general is, is very important. And I, I think to sort of, I guess, just give my two cents, there is very much two camps of people who are, you know, this will be done with and then we can get back on with things and there's other people that are sort of going, well, whether that's true or not, like what can we do about it now? And it's very much that sort of internal, external locus of control and I would be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, just to comment on what you said, it sounds like you are, you know, you mentioned making more of an effort to connect with people um, socially on the internet and it sounds like you've kind of, gone well this could be for a while and i need to be able to make that effort to to be social over the internet i I, like i imagine there are people out there who are going well you know i'm not really going to bother completely changing up some of the things in my life because we will be back to normal within however long three months six months whatever they think it's going to be um and so maybe they don't feel the pressure to do that but uh I don't know if I'm interpreting that wrong, but maybe you're thinking it's going to be like a longer term thing in in the way that you maybe interact with people. Uh, I think I'm unsure about that. And I guess probably my, my statement would be more irrespective of whether it's a long-term thing. Why not trial experiment? Like any opportunity for growth or development seems worth taking, I Mm. guess. Yep. that could be defined to justify any kind of behavior. And there's obviously limitations to that, but I, I think that's more my general attitude. Yeah. Cool. Uh, makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, I was talking with my wife about it and I think there's this sort of uncertainty that just permeates everything to be perfectly honest. We're in a, uh, an enviable, enviable position compared to many people, especially in the US and obviously with the lockdowns in, uh, in Australia as well, because, you know, I'm quite aware of that because I've got quite a lot of clients in Victoria, for example. Um, and I've just seen that the, the mental toll it takes on them having tasted freedom to some extent and then having to go back, it's difficult. But, uh, you know, for us, having been in a village in Sweden, you know, I mentioned this before on several times that we've chatted, it, it was pretty pretty free for us and uh, coming to the Netherlands, certainly there's a little bit more restriction and we're in a bigger place now, but the effects of the, of the pandemic are not really as noticeable as other places. So it's interesting because we have relative freedom and of course we're just working as normal, but at the same time, you know, there is this uncertainty that just kind of permeates everything. So it's a bit of a weird uneasiness like all the time in the background. And I think I've actually noticed that really uh, affecting me a little bit mentally. We've already had some, some obvious challenges with 
moving and being in a new country and all that sort of stuff. But then you kind of have that sort of coursing through the background as well. And I, it's just, I found a couple of days where I think maybe I've had a little bit of like a higher edge on my mood, like a bit of anxiety or something like that. So that's been interesting. And I guess, you know, that doesn't really answer your question as to how long I think this will go on, but I'm not sure. Uh, like who knows, I guess it's just that huge uncertainty, but I think it's probably longer than most people or the effect of it will be felt much longer than most people are. Uh, recognizing of course we all hope that things can go back to normal sooner rather than later but um, you know I think that things like air travel for example will almost be permanently changed from this um, I think certain other aspects you know people are looking at how uh, we, we structure work work uh, and study and that kind of stuff I mean you know, I was actually looking at into some degrees and stuff. And, and I, I noticed there's a little bit more online offerings around now, which is something that suits me quite well, but I, I still don't think, I think universities obviously still trying to make it mostly in person where they can, but as this continues, I don't think that's going to be tenable, you know, especially if you're having to go in and out of lockdowns as there are flare ups and, and that sort of stuff. So I think it's just one of those things where perhaps that's going to sort of change the structure of how we, just fundamentally do things. Um, so I think those effects will be felt for a long time to come, but uh, otherwise it's, I don't know, man, it's interesting. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think uh, like you demonstrated the, the intent of my question a little bit. I, I forget what the, the term for them. Are they Fermi, Fermi questions or yeah. maybe not? That's the wrong. Yeah. But it's like, we're sort of asking, a quite difficult to answer question, but it's more so interesting the reasoning process that someone goes through. And that, that was sort of what I was getting at. I just wanted to see where your head was at. Um, I think that's, they're interesting and a sort of useful way to, to dig into someone's psychology a little, mm. um, in regards to, to what you actually said, I, well, I think the point you make about the, the general, uh, anxiety kind of backdrop, just the sort of the uncertainty backdrop and the way that it does permeate thoughts uh, and interactions and things like that. And I was sort of thinking a little bit about how, you know, even if, even if life isn't being impacted that much, say for you currently, there's still, I guess, say you're having the same amount of random chance encounters that, you would during a regular non-pandemic time. Um, there's still the factor of, even if you're having as many random chance encounters, the fact that people are wearing masks or not wearing masks or just say the uncertainty that they're experiencing, they're probably less likely to even invest in those random chance encounters. And that still impacts your ability to develop a social network in a different country. And as you mentioned, there's, there's these issues and sort of you know, background sort of springs of anxiety and things like that already current. And as you speak to a lot about you know, the value of community and relationships and, and things of that nature, having a difficulty to develop those, that it's all a sort of bit of a synergistic problem and, and not to sort of cast things a, a doom and gloom theme for you. But I, I do think it is a very interesting problem. And I, I do, uh, 
I do have concerns and I guess interest to weigh the way that things are they're going to going to play out. Um, I hope things change, like improvement requires change. Um, but there's a lot of, I guess, anxiety that comes along with change and there can be a lot of collateral damage along the way. Yeah, I actually think you touch on something interesting there in that I think some people are really celebrating this whole pandemic because although there have been some, you know, massive uh, victims, one of the benefits of it is that it has spurred change. Like I was just saying to someone the other day, I'm not sure the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests would have gone ahead even, or certainly not to the same extent, had there not already been the pandemic on top of it, to give an example. Um, You know, people have been talking about uh, location independent work and study for a long time, as I mentioned before, but there was no real incentive to push for that until now. Um, so yeah, there'll probably be some fundamental changes on a societal level that have to be borne out through this very trying time. And uh, unfortunately there's a lot of people who are going to, who have been and will continue to suffer as a result of it. But definitely there's some people out there who look to the positive aspects of it in terms of it being a catalyst for change. So, you know, it's, uh, I think it's good to take the positive sides of it as well. And to understand that if you are making a genuine change and evolving, then that's going to be uncomfortable at times. Uh, and so it's probably almost a good sign that there is that undercurrent of anxiety provided you can, of course, deal with it. Yeah. I don't have a, whole lot to follow up on there i think um just in regards to the the point you make about remote work i was just listening to a podcast um i'm not sure tyler cohen his his uh, podcast conversations with tyler he had the um basically the scientific management guru nick bloom on um and yeah nick highlighted the point that we basically had all the tools for remote work by 2003 and this is not surprising to anyone, but as the the point that he made was Skype was basically the last piece of that equation. Um, you know, we had sort of the internet, email, like the, basically the ability to record and transmit footage, audio, all things like that. Like Skype was sort of the, one of the final pieces of the puzzle. And it took uh, 17 years after that and some pretty serious environmental constraints for us to actually act on that. And I think that's, that speaks to the point of, I think just to some very fundamental points of behavior change and just human psychology, human nature, like it's, you know, you can have tools, information, things like that, but to some degree, like environmental constraints are important for generating both the best and the worst outcomes. Yeah, it's very interesting. I my um, my dad works in IT, and he was he's always commented on like you know if you go into any of the major banks or corporations or stuff like that, they often are still running you know Windows ninety five or something like that because that's just the standard. And man, they're not going to make a change unless they really have to. And I think it's probably a similar thing. Do you think um, do you think this is going to sort of fundamentally change the fitness industry in any significant way? Uh, that that's something I have thought about and I'm unsure. So it would, it will hopefully help some of my thinking being able to talk through this with you. 
should fundamentally change the fitness industry. Uh, that would be, it would be worrisome if the fitness industry was completely insulated from things like this. I think there will be a, there's going to be a reshuffling of, of the deck. I think I'm not sure if that's quite the right way to phrase it. Um, but I don't think the, for lack of a better word, and I'm thinking probably more at the, the organizational industry sort of level, I'm showing the, my own bias on this is just being a someone in the industry, um, you know, more so than just a consumer of sort of fitness information. But I think the the big fitness companies going into this won't be the big fitness companies coming out of it. And I think this speaks to some of the interests that you and I share is that you can exercise, you can track your protein and do things like that. And that is absolutely no guarantee to take care of all your psycho, you know, psychosocial, physical health variables. Um, so I think this is a, a big experiment or a, maybe not, this is sort of a, a singular case study of demonstrating that, you know, there, there's way more, that we need to consider for people's wellness than just steps and total calories. Um, so I think sort of, as I said, that, that notion ties into the big companies unless they adapt and change and sort of start spreading, I think different messages, people start listening to different voices. Uh, I think there will also be, I hope, I guess a greater focus on just education. Like that's something that I'm a massive sort of supporter of. And I hope that the, with, with isolation, they're sort of a little bit oxymoronic at this stage, but this has sort of isolation has brought independence. I was about to say freedom, but that, that wasn't quite, quite the right word. It is, with isolation has become independence and with independence, I think you can really learn what you're capable of. And hopefully there is, I think I would like to see just a greater amount of focus on. And again, this is coming from our own biases and I can only speak from, from that perspective, but I'm more supportive of like give people the tools, let them sort of help themselves. I still think coaching will, will always be important, but I would much rather the sort of, the well-informed public and the slightly less I tell you what to do style coaching and more the, yeah, the collaborative effort between a, yeah, a well-informed public and a helpful, but not multiple hundred dollars a month kind of coach. It's like just almost like I love working with my friends on health and fitness, sort of like at a certain point I've, I've taught them enough over the years, sort of fed them breadcrumbs over dinner conversations and things like that. Then they need some more explicit help. And it's like, we can really begin to spin things around for them. And I think that is very rewarding. But yeah, I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on the general industry or the nature of the work that we do. Yeah, uh, some great insights there. And I think follows a lot of my own thinking about what I'm trying to do with my coaching as being a facilitator uh, of self-efficacy and collaborating on someone's health rather than 
here's the prescription, do it. Uh, which does need to happen sometimes, admittedly. But really, I found myself uh, using the, you know, obviously the the numbers of, you know, whatever, tracking your macros and your body weight and numbers in the gym and all that sort of stuff is important as a piece of the puzzle. But I think a lot of people go into coaching with that being that's what coaching is, um, you know, from both ends of the spectrum, from, from the client and from the coach. And I've found more and more that the larger overall impact on people's health and well-being and, and you know, just general happiness has been other things. Um, and so I've really tried to facilitate that a lot more with my coaching. And I actually realized that there was a greater demand for it once this pandemic started, because of course there were people who were struggling with their mental health and, and all of a sudden they didn't have as much control over their training and that kind of thing. So there became this, it was always a part of my coaching, but there was suddenly this bigger vacuum to fill on the mental health side of things on, you know, a bunch of other stuff, introspection and, and mindfulness and blah, 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 blah which all ties into nutrition and training as well. Um, and so I'm actually really positive in the fact that people are more receptive to that stuff now and they recognize the importance of it and they recognize that a coach can help them with that. Whereas before, I think it's a lot of like, yeah, you need to work on yourself and that almost implied that you have to do it by yourself, which is not the same thing. Uh, so I think it's kind of made a lot of people more receptive to that. And I actually noticed... Because a lot of the, the content I put out that gets a lot of good interaction and has therefore shaped the way I produce more content on Instagram or my membership site or whatever has been kind of very almost numbers oriented. You know what I mean? It's like, this is how much sleep you need and this is how many steps you should take and that kind of thing. And people love that stuff because it's a really easy thing to visualize. It's tangible. So you get a lot of interaction and sharing and people frothing over that, but it's the less important side of things, to be honest. And I've noticed that I've started to lean too much on that kind of content. And I was speaking to my wife again and I just said, like the most rewarding uh, relationships that I have as a coach is where we are talking about the less tangible stuff. Um, and I feel like I'm having the best impact there. And so I told her, hey, I have to change the way that I uh, nurture my public image in terms of saying like, yeah, okay, I can reel off a bunch of statistics from, you know, I've, I've looked at the research. I can tell you that, you know, on average, this is what you should be doing. But really the, the role is for us to both work together to find out what actually works for you as an individual. So in that sense, I think that, you know, from my own perspective, what's happened with the, the Corona situation has changed the way that I do my coaching or it's, it's more made me, maybe not changed it, but it's made me shift my focus back again and recognize um, what has the most impact and what I think matters the most. And it's made my clients more receptive to it, which is a really good thing. So I do think that that's happening and I think people are probably, you know, in other spaces, maybe people aren't being as uh, mindful of things like mindfulness and introspection and the other factors involved in their health and well-being. but at least they are taking 
the fact that they need to pay attention to some of that low-hanging fruit, whether it's sleep or exercise or nutrition, they're taking that more seriously because they recognize how much that impacts their life when they're sort of confronted with it. There's no more being distracted from that when you're literally locked inside and you can't do anything that you normally do. Yeah, I think you make make a lot of uh, really valuable points there. Um, I'll start start at the start and try and remember all of them. Uh, you were speaking there about the the numbers um, and those kinds of things, the infographics and the the really tangible but potentially not the most important things that people should be worrying about. And it reminds me of when I was trying to, when I ended up brain dumping all of my information in that article that I, I tried to write for you on epistemology. And I tried to put some insights in there on, on Bayes rule. And it's, I'm glad that I have declouded a lot of my thoughts since then. Um, but I guess one of the, the major insights surrounding Bayes rule is that the, the test isn't the truth. It, it's just a way to, it's just an insight on the truth. And I think the, the style of infographics that you talk about that people, people obsess about, Oh, this is the test, whether it be scale weight, hours of slept, um, macros and calories. It's like, if I'm doing this, then the truth is taking care of itself. It's just like, Again, like there's good predictability depending on you know the efficacy of the test, but the test is not the truth. Like until those things are, are one and the same, then we need to take that with some grain of salt. Um, and I guess that's sort of that's something I see a lot. And I think it uh, at times we err further from what we should actually be doing depending on sort of the environmental incentives. And, and you speak a little bit about this uh, just in your own behavior. Um, we tend to try and game the system a little bit based on these tests. And I think people do this a little bit with their own health and fitness, but people do this say like with education, we, you know, a test is coming up. So you concern yourself with learning what's on the test, not what the test is actually supposed to represent and, or it's supposed to generate, which is knowledge acquisition. Um, as, as you said, you have a business and image, uh, just a, a personal philosophy, if you know nothing else. And because things like engagement metrics are quite useful and tangible, you end up veering back towards them. And I think this is someone as introspective you know, as yourself and, you've caught yourself as you've mentioned and you need to have that conversation with your wife, but not everyone even carries the level of insight and introspection that you do, which is potentially a cause for concern and a reason why you are spreading the message of it being important. So uh, that's sort of what I had to say on that. I think it's just a general trap that we all fall into of using the test as a proxy for, or, maybe misconstruing that how much tests are just a proxy for the truth. Um, and I've sort of forgot my second thought now, but maybe you have some thoughts on that. I'll see if I remember or maybe you don't. Yeah, no, it's tough when you, <laughs> when you go on a bit of a, a soliloquy and then you know, 
someone else has got to try and keep all the stuff they want to comment in their head. It can be a bit tough. No, I mean, I totally agree. It's, it's obviously, I think it's a, it's almost a fundamental flaw in how modern society is arranged in that we have these like very like KPI based sort of rules into how society functions. It comes from our schooling where you have to get certain grades. Um, it comes into the, the, business world or the corporate world where obviously you're chasing a dollar figure, but there are other things underneath that that are like very um, one dimensional in many cases. And then even to the point of, you know, pursuing GDP as like the measure of success, which uh, leads to all sorts of problems. Although by, you know, it's not a bad thing to, to look at. It's at the exclusion of other factors. It is. Uh, and so it almost just kind of permeates our mindset, I think, because that's the environment we are grown up in, we, we are educated in, and that we work in um, at the end of the day. And so, you know, how much of it is just the human uh, cognitive deficit in that we, we just want a number to look at and to chase, something that's very easy for us to visualize. I think that's part of it, but it's probably also part of this sort of societal principle almost yeah i i fully agree um i think the it would be erroneous to suggest that the way our behavior comes to fruition would be sort of a result of things other well, no, sorry i've got myself a bit tangled there uh the fact that our our cognitive limitations play a significant role in our behavior and the way it comes to fruition should not be surprising to um, someone with your you know, education background. Um, so yeah, I think that the fact that people rely on numbers and things like that is, is not surprising. And this actually did lead back to the second point and something I wanted to ask you on. Um, I think with maybe I'll sort of lay out my thinking and then you tell me what you think about this. I think there is currently uh, potentially a bubble, like in the sort of the, the stock market uh, housing bubble kind of sense, beginning to form a little bit in the evidence-based sort of fitness community in the sense that I think my thinking gets a little bit misconstrued or maybe misunderstood in this regard. I am not suggesting that things like calories or protein or body weight, BMI, anything like whatever sort of big metric sleep, whatever are not important. I guess what I try and pay attention to is how well calibrated are beliefs in comparison to how well is the map matching the territory to use sort of simple um, mental models style language. Even if tracking calories is <clears throat> say the most important or calories are the most important for um, determining body weight fluctuations, changes, changes in body composition, things like that. Say they come in at 90% of all effects um, of all possible effects. If you are valuing them at 99%, that is still an overvaluation and you are creating errors in just the general system. So that, I guess that would be my, my general framework. And I think there is currently a possibly slight bubble um, sort of in the sense that 
this is all very good. Let's buy in sort of completely. There's no risk here. Just, yeah, as I said, I'm sort of mixing uh, stock market terms with, with general thinking terms, but hopefully you understand where I'm at and I'd be very interested to hear what you think. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I agree with that. And I think that it's really difficult because to give an example with say exercise selection or exercise execution or something like that, we can't tell for sure how much being really anal about an execution of an exercise or selecting an exercise for an individual will really contribute to their overall progress. You know, so, okay, we can do the obvious stuff. Like if someone's doing quarter reps on a squat and we get them to do even half reps, like we would expect to see a significant return on that. But, you know, to the point where we can look at something on paper and we can be like, yeah, well, this exercise uh, is better suited to this sort of resistance profile and this sort of build and biomechanically, this is a better way of doing things. I think hypothetically or, you know, from a, a sort of scientific standpoint, you could make a case that like, okay, this exercise is better for, for this person, for example, as an alternative, but how much better is it in terms of the results they're going to get? So like we've invested a lot of time and energy thinking about it, going into the details, telling people like, no, you have to do it this way, but we can't ever really know for sure how much of a return we're getting on that. It could be 5% improvement. It could be 50% improvement. You don't really know though, because you can't obviously do a randomized control trial on it. So things like that is, I think a very difficult thing because as a, a, you know, a lot of people come to me as a coach for my knowledge and my experience specifically of the evidence and the literature and mechanisms and things like that. Right. So I can say to someone that like, yeah, I mean, hypothetically timing your meals in this way would be better than the other way that you were doing, but I can't tell you how much better it would be. And it's likely that it's not that much better. So you can end up with someone who's like neurotic about timing their meals. And at the end of the day, is it better? Yeah, it's better but is it worth how much better it is for the amount of effort you had to put in and for how neurotic you are about it now? Like probably not in many cases, but the reality is we don't really know for sure. We can take an educated guess. So I find that really difficult to wrestle with because on one hand, when people come to you and they're paying you a lot of money and it's kind of like, well, I want to do what's optimal for me. I can tell them that like, okay, we can improve this. We can improve this. We can improve this, but improvement in those areas doesn't necessarily mean it's actually worth doing because the return on investment is so small. And we obviously get diminishing returns with things uh, as a general rule. So that's super difficult to work out. Um, and I think, that, you know, that's something that maybe people don't really understand that like, yeah, we have all of these sort of, numbers and we can manipulate your calories to the nth degree and we can track everything and all of that but doing all of that what's the threshold for making it worth it you know if i'm going to get 10 percent better results by doing all of this stuff versus just kind of winging it and applying general principles and kind of just generally moving in the right direction if i'm only going to get 10 percent better results by being really meticulous with all of that and hitting all the numbers that the science says i'm supposed to hit or whatever it is is that worth it? Like, that's probably not worth it to me. Um, 
and that's how I train at the moment. Like I'm not looking to, to grow much more muscle or anything like that. I'm kind of just looking to get into the gym and do it for the health benefits and that sort of thing. And so for me to go in, I know that like, okay, if I pick an exercise that feels pretty good for me on a body part, I do a reasonable amount of volume on it in a reasonable proximity to failure. I'm moving in the right direction and I'm not interested in going in and tweaking it and, and all of this sort of stuff to the nth degree, even though I could do that. And it is, you know, ostensibly better. Uh, but if the difference was, I don't know, like a 30% improvement, maybe it's worth it for me at that point. But the problem is, again, we can't tell and it's going to vary between individuals. So yeah, I, I guess my point with that is it's just one of those things where of course we want to chase those numbers and people are out there saying X is better than Y, but it's a little bit disingenuous, like it's true, but it's disingenuous. Yeah, again, I think you make lots of excellent points. There is, we have these general ideas of uh, the direction of which the arrows of causation are pointing and we have names for the mechanisms and things like that. So it's sort of, we, we feel like because we can describe something, we, we know a lot about it. Whereas in actual fact, it's like, to know a lot about that thing you need to then know a lot about sort of what occurs after it what occurs prior to it and just there is at some point your your knowledge of the situation is going to stop and that really gives you an inability to calibrate sort of everything within it like there is again sort of caveats and more extreme examples but it's like yeah we as i said i think the the general issue is we know which way the arrows are pointing. We go, yes, timing your meals will push towards better. It's not going to push you towards inferior results. However, it's just like, does it move you 0.01% or 70%? Who knows? Um, and this, I think, this, I think ties in with, you raise a good point about clients that sort of, almost progressively continue to push for that, that little bit more, that little bit more. Cause I think one of the, the double-edged swords of the human mind a little bit is its, its ability to sort of go, okay, yeah, this is now normal. Sort of it, it continually adjusts the points on of the sort of a psycho, psychological homeostasis, like concept creep or whatever we sort of want to name it. And people, end up going from sort of tracking a reasonable amount of variables to the amount of progress that they're getting, continually tracking more, obsessing about more, 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 as you said, becoming increasingly neurotic. And then they find themselves at this, for the amount of effort that I'm generating, I'm not getting, or the amount of effort, yeah, that I'm sort of putting in, I'm not generating the rewards that I want. And then as a coach, they, they sort of feel this, deficit and go i need a coach that will be the answer and they can end up in the probably more disingenuous coaching sort of realm where someone does shuffle variables sort of does all these things and then maybe takes six 12 months of their pay off them and then says oh ultimately you're not cut out for it you know something like that um because there's always going to be sort of another one of those people or let's say maybe you end up in the, the loop Tullick sort of realm of coaching and you have a coach who says, 
you know, maybe I'm not, not to put words in your mouth, but someone that says like, actually you're like, you're over investing here. It's not that the, like you're getting inadequate results. It's that you're shoving in way too much money to try and generate, you know, sort of money again, um, to try to generate the returns that, that you're getting. And this, I guess is, is one of the things that rattles around, around my mind is that, um, there's basically a phrase that that is something like the goal of having more knowledge or just acquiring more information is akin to acquiring more money. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a fantastic idea to try and acquire more money and more information, but it's also an equally valuable skill to know what to do with limited amounts of information and limited amounts of money. And people tend to be for some reason, they just forget that their ability to invest effort, the amount of hours in the day, their psychological well-being, and all these variables ha- have limited uh, resources and like they are not indefinitely refuelable. And it's, I guess, yeah, now I'm sort of getting off the point of, or getting off, making an actual point and sort of more so just speaking about the difficulties of some of the coaching process. Um, yeah, you get these people that come to you and telling them that they're over-investing and that is the cause of their concern rather than their lack of returns for what they're investing. Uh, that's a, that's a really difficult thing. And I do hope that that message begins to permeate the industry and not only the coaches and the people that are supposed to be helping, but then does filter down to the people who are then looking for coaches and what they are looking for in a coach. Yeah. Good points. I mean, really good points. I think it's, it's really tough because I don't want to necessarily always have to go in and almost tell a client that like they're focusing on the wrong thing. I want them to come to that conclusion by themselves. And it's an immensely difficult thing with some people to help them sort of come to that conclusion by themselves and to perform the self-analysis required and to essentially challenge their, their current beliefs to the point where they're going, well, actually, I, need, I want to institute a change here. I think that what I've been doing is maybe not correct or too far down uh, one rabbit hole and I would like to change the way I do things or uh, change my values even, which is a really tough thing. Um, it's something that I try and do with my clients, uh, especially the people who get very obsessed with numbers, like, you know, weight on the scale or something. I, I really try and, you know, ask the right questions to start the gears turning in their minds for them to go like, do I really care about this number on the scale? Or maybe I actually care about something else more instead of me saying to them, Hey, you, you are way too obsessed with this number on the scale and you need to change it. It's like, is that really a model for lasting change for them? Mm, For some people it can help be the catalyst, but for many other people it's not, and you need to do a better job than that. But that's, that's a tough part with coaching. Uh, 
it can take a few weeks and all this sort of stuff. And meanwhile, people are stuck into this mental model of like, yeah, I have to work really hard for the next 12 weeks with this coaching and, and that sort of thing. So it can be really challenging that way. But, you know, that's where I think some of the better coaches have moved towards is providing that kind of service where you act as a collaborator and as a more objective more impartial entity in the relationship almost like a sounding board and a facilitator for the person's own insights and their own change um and i think sometimes if you do that really well it almost seems like you as the coach weren't uh sort of providing that much on the surface but in reality you know you've really instituted or helped to institute great change if you actually look deeper with it and that's a challenging thing because uh you're still obviously trying to justify your existence <laughs> in that relationship and it can be difficult for people to identify that sometimes so it's a uh, it's just stuff i've been thinking about lately just that uh connects to what you were saying connects to what i was talking about earlier about how i sort of present my my knowledge and my approach online and in my public persona um yeah it's a it's a super interesting thing i've actually been trying to look into some coaching tools that i can use to be better with that sort of stuff like as opposed to just like spreadsheets that track numbers and that sort of thing like what else can we use to help facilitate that and um, i haven't really found anything too fantastic but i'm always thinking about it and the way i communicate with people so it's a it's a fascinating topic that is going to take a lot more refining on my end i think yeah i think again lots of good points and very much a case of uh the the somewhat loggerheads we've sort of reached in this the current coaching climate they're like they're good points but it's sort of yeah cool it's the the tricky point will be like what are we going to do about them and very much not to not at all to suggest you're making redundant points it's just the case of like i'm recognizing the entire or the entirety of the difficulty in cool now how do we do something about that and then that in and of itself brings brings other issues and i think you're your point about good coaching, I would say maps almost identically onto mine and the terminology that typically comes to mind for me is that like the inside view versus the outside view, sort of not, not quite the subjective versus the objective, but that, that person has that very much like, okay, this is what my life is like. These are the, these are the things I'm dealing with. And then you as that, you know, caring, but partially um, you know, sort of more impartial, sorry, observer can help them focus on the correct things. But it really, it really should be, I think the combination of that inside and outside view. And that again, speaks to the point about collaborative coaching. Um, I, I do have a dislike for the way that an objective style of coaching has trended towards just averages and things like that it's again to sort of to go back to the point of um bayes rule and things like that it's like we have a prior and then we update that prior using information 
yet I think there is an almost by definition, like the best prior to use is sort of uh, scientific studies, averages, things like that. But then we should still update in the direction of whatever experience the client is reporting and recognize that even with all our scientific information, it may not capture all the, the requisite knowledge um, we need in order to solve that problem. And yeah, that's maybe a thing in and of itself. And you, you may have some comments there. And the other thing I was just going to say quickly was um, the issue of signaling versus what you're actually doing. Like the, the, the most effective coaching is sort of just absolutely like devoid of, of signaling and just like the person effectively doesn't know they're being coached and they're just moving in the right direction. It seems like week after week, it's cool. Love what you're doing. And then just by, you know, what seems like sheer chance to them, they end up having that lifestyle. And it was like, Oh, I didn't need that, you know, three, four, five months of coaching. Um, and I had a sort of a similar, I mean, a similar, I had a, an interesting client experience just recently, um, more so a friend than a client. I shouldn't say that, but uh, this person tends to do quite well on whatever metric we are looking at once I ease the pressure off it. And it's, it takes probably a few weeks of me drilling in that this is an important metric. And at that point they're sort of, they're somewhat resistant, somewhat like just by default, I guess in communication, people end up taking somewhat opposing stances on things. And if I'm really pushing for it, this person is sort of somewhat subconsciously thinking, uh, if it's that important, I would have been doing it already. So they're sort of rationalizing why it isn't as important as, as what I'm saying. Um, and I'm not saying, sorry, this person specifically, I'm just saying it's just more generally an experience that we tend to go through. And then it's not until that I go, Oh, you know what? Like, let's not worry too much about scale weight this week. And then all of a sudden they're weighing in seven days a week. Like I'd sort of been requesting or whatever it may be. That's just a, a general example. I don't think that's entirely necessary, but from the client's view of that situation, it, I guess, seems like they're more steering their behavior than potentially what I'm observing. And maybe I'm over-observing my, my role in that manner. But I think the point I'm getting at is we are both factors in this equation. And over time, this person has really improved. They're really happy with things. And they do credit like me with a lot of that. So I, I am appreciative of that. But the point I'm getting to is I don't think most people are sort of as aware of the, the more long-term effects of the, the coaching experience. And it's very much, what did they tell me this week? Oh, I did this this week. Therefore that dot connects to that. And again, it comes back to those cognitive limitations that we were talking about a little bit, but yeah, I've spoken a lot there. So you go for it. Yeah. Uh, on the same page with you, I think it's the, challenge of putting theory into practice and uh, yeah i mean i think it's just a simple case of like if you pay a lot of money for something and 
you put the effort into it, you kind of want to be able to look at a piece of paper and be like, well, this is what I got from it. <laughs> um, and that's used as a marketing tool as well. You know, there is, there is a lot of coaching out there that is like, this was before and this was after the coaching and look at this drastic difference. This is the number change. This is the, the distinct visual change. Um, and I think some people are going into coaching, just wanting that they just want someone to get up them and to like get them to, to move their ass more and to work harder and that sort of thing, which is fine. I, you know, I do think there's a place for, for coaching like that, but I'm in agreement with you in that I've had some clients who have sort of, I've worked with and it's all sort of slowly worked its way into a position that I'm fairly happy with. And the client is ostensibly happy with, and they go, okay, I think I'm ready to go off by myself now, which is what I want off they go. And, you know, I think they eventually work out that maybe there was something a bit intangible about that coaching experience that got them where they wanted to go. And now that they're by themselves, it's the sudden absence of that, that coaching presence almost that they can detect somehow, uh, which is a really interesting thing. Um, because it's, you know, it's quite often the case that like, I'll check in on a next client, uh, and they'll be like, actually, I was thinking of reaching out to you again. Um, there's obviously something that they feel like they were getting from it that, that they, they want again, but maybe they can't quite put their finger on it exactly. So it's a challenging thing. And I try to, uh, show my clients that like there is a, a even when there are cases of like hey okay you're doing really well let's just keep this going there's a lot of thought process that goes into that and there's a, a macroscopic view so yeah okay we're talking about what should we do differently from this week to the next week potentially but from a coaching perspective i'm trying to think about well how is this fitting into the next three six twelve plus months um and so sometimes I think there is a mismatch between the almost the timeline and the scope that the coach is thinking on versus what the client is thinking on because they view it as an investment that they want to get a return on as soon as possible in the same way, like we can stick with our stock market analogies if we want to, you know, uh, you want to get that money back as, as quickly as possible. Like that's, there's value in, in the time period there. So it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic and, I think the overall, so the industry has taught people what to expect from coaching. And I'm hoping that there are definitely some coaches out there who are working on a, on a different level right now with, uh, with overall well-being and instigating overall change. And it's kind of had this crossover from almost like uh, the therapeutic realm where people are, are seeing, you know, be, being clinical cases in, in, in psychotherapy or, you know, just talking to a therapist, uh, there is sort of the, the bleed over from uh, coaching people for life coach type stuff, I suppose, and that bleeding over into a personal trainer now doing some coaching. One of the things that I think is interesting about that is just trying to understand how qualified we are to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I think there are some inherent skills as a coach that you can have, like I mentioned before, where you can almost help people come to their own conclusions. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to have a, a, a master's degree in psychology or something like that. Um, but it is an interesting thing 
uh, I know a lot of coaches struggle with. It's like, well, I am uniquely qualified to provide exercise instruction. I'm not qualified to do nutrition coaching. I'm not qualified to do any life coaching. I'm not qualified in any psychological sense. So it's like there's this greater demand being imposed on coaches from a holistic point of view. And it's just like, I feel like there's a lot of skill and knowledge that needs to go into that to kind of really encompass everything that a person has going on. Um, And maybe then the expectations will get a little bit too great. Like you can't just go to someone and they'll be able to be the perfect fit for you in every realm of your life to be able to tell you what to do or something like that, for example. Um, So I think then the, the fundamental skill is really being the, yeah, the facilitator for personal introspection uh, and, and that kind of thing. Um, not sure if you have further thoughts on that because like just to kind of tie this into my own life, I was really, since I was doing more of this, um, I guess you could call it more holistic sort of stuff on well-being. I was thinking, well, you know, I'd really love to do some formal study on this. And so I was, like I mentioned a little earlier, I was considering enrolling in a psychology degree um, and seeing where that takes me. There is obviously like a, a field of psychology that is, you know, nutrition related or is, uh, you know, physical fitness related and that kind of thing. And so I think that would be quite an interesting thing to pursue. But again, it's like how much realistically, how much time and education and effort can you invest in that? Like I don't have a dietetics degree, but I still feel that my knowledge and ability to provide nutrition information to people is probably better than a lot of people with a formal education in nutrition. So it's a bit of a tough one to reconcile and I don't know uh, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think that that speaks a little bit to my point earlier about education in part is, is signaling like then there is as again, to sort of use previous terms in this conversation, there's, there's the test and then there's the truth. And I think the truth of the matter is that you very much have the knowledge to help these people and knowledge that far exceeds other people's, but those people have passed the test. So it's sort of the, that that's a difficult and complex thing to reconcile. And I don't, I don't at all know what to do about it, but in regards to the point of, uh, the the way that some coaches are currently going about things doing or playing roles that that are not currently qualified that they're potentially not currently qualified for i think that is one like what we should expect um you know, there's always going to be the innovation before there's the the qualification process um so i don't think anything i don't think there's anything that's inherently out of kilter about that though we do need to ensure that there is some kind of uh, appropriate linking between the way that people how far people are extending beyond the currently sort of qualified boundaries um, and who as well like i think sort of the more general thought leaders probably isn't the right word but the more thoughtful sort of people should be leading that charge it's like okay yeah, I have looked into the endocrinology literature. I have gone and spoken to, you know, really interesting and educated, uh, say like like Ben Pakulski or something like that, or these people who are 
thinking about things like that, who, like I said to, to Austin, sorry, the other day, um, on one of his podcasts, um, I like the MI 40 guys or whatever the brand actually is because, or for a lot of what they, they stand for because they are mostly scientifically supported, but not scientifically limited. And I think that is very much the, the precipice that we're on currently. We are, there's a, a breed of people, breeds probably not the right word, but there's, there's a demographic of people who are sticking very, very closely to what the science supports. And I think they're probably like leaning excessively that way um, and potentially overvaluing some of the more, you know, scientific claims as we've, as we've spoken to. And then there are others who are well and truly leaning too far the other way and putting all their effort into the, the guru-y sort of woo-woo. I don't even know what the, the right way to determine is the, the excessive holistic wellness kind of things. But hopefully the truth that truth or value or utility that both those camps possess can begin to sort of meld together. And there's people that, that can help bridge that divide. And in order to do that, it will require people sort of thinking expansively treading beyond currently recognized boundaries and limitations. Um, but you cannot, be sort of silly about that as a, as I sort of began to say, it's like someone like yourself who has spoken or who is pretty familiar with literature uh, or just say the nutrition and physical sort of exercise literature. It's not that too far a step into the endocrinology literature, especially based on your understanding of physiology. Then once you marry it up with, um, you know, say more inside views and firsthand um, sort of, coaching experiences and things like that of other people who are well informed um, on those areas we can begin to to push into some of those areas but like that's to to speak again on something relating to hormones which overall is maybe falls beyond the current uh, realm of fitness coaching but that's still a whole lot more tangible than when we begin talking about human psychology and things like that. And that's, again, I'm not saying anything new here that, or that won't surprise you, but that's a really difficult area. And, but in saying that it's, I think the most, and this sort of speaks a little bit to a point that I think you made earlier of the most rewarding coaching experiences I've had, there's probably like a handful, not even a handful. I'd say there is yet yeah, less than a handful of before and after transformations that sort of are like, you know, cool. Re looks great. Like really does. And especially when you know what went into that, that begins to mean a lot to you, but the little things on a, on a daily basis or sort of a micro coaching basis is, is typically like, Oh, I've been having this problem with my boyfriend or I'm struggling to concentrate when I'm studying on this topic. That's not related to what you coach me for. And I'm like, Oh, something I find really useful when having difficult conversations or 
one of the things that I've found have really helped me concentrate is X, Y, Z. And it's that, that weekly email or the phone call or the, the Skype or zoom with them the next week or two later. And they're like, Oh, that that's amazing. And it's like, and that's the first thing they want to talk about. And then it's like, Oh, and also like I'm two kilos down, but like the most important thing for them is the improvements on in their life outside of that. And again, that sort of ties back into the point we're making early though, is like when that person probably leaves, they probably only measure the success of like how many kilos down are they? And they forget or just, yeah, all the other little help that positive change that you've helped facilitate along the way. And that's, yeah, I don't know. Again, I'll pass it back to you because I'm, I'm running out of answers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's good. It's reflective of my own experience. So it's, it's good that we're like on the same page with that. And, um, you know, it's a funny thing because I, I also read something recently where I think it was a marketing type thing and they were saying um, it's really good to get feedback from your client base or it's good to get feedback from like if you were trying to say attract like an ideal client, it's good to get feedback from that group of people as to what they want. But often they'll tell you something that they want, which is not really what they want, <laughs> which just confuses it because you, you just go oh well if i want to attract more people like this i'll just ask them why they look for me and what they like that i do and you know that'll be good um but usually it's it's either signaling as you mentioned like they feel like they should be chasing a certain goal when really maybe they don't care about it that much deep down um or they just don't recognize what's more important to them um you know and i've had cases before where we've had I've had clients over a 12 week period, for example, and they tell me, okay, I want to lose X amount of weight. And we go through and we, we just happen to find something that works really well from them early on. They drop five or six kilos over that period of time, um, which is a fantastic result. And then they get annoyed because we didn't change things often enough. And it's like, okay, but you told me you wanted to lose this weight. And that's exactly what we did with minimal fuss, which to me is a sign of excellent coaching. Um, but obviously what they were looking for was some kind of more drastic change in their life or some kind of secret that, that they, they want to know that nobody else does or something. And, um, you only really work that out after the fact, you know? So like, that's the tough thing about it sometimes. Uh, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a super, uh, interesting topic. I think we've kind of, uh, explored a lot of corners there and it's given me a lot to think about myself as well. So, uh, yeah, pretty interesting. I also wanted to actually ask you like, um, before we end up running out of time is, uh, what you're reading at the moment, if you've kind of stumbled across anything interesting lately or anything you're looking forward to reading. Yeah. So I would say, um, a general approach I've been trying to take in my own self-development is steering a little more, maybe left of field or, okay, maybe like I'll start with my general interest is sort of rational thinking, general objectivity. Like I want to, like I would read about science sort of 24 seven if 
I could take enough modafinil to, to keep me alive for long enough. Like, um, but like just even modafinil in and of itself, not to, sorry, derail this conversation too much, but it's like science has done amazing things like that. Modafinil will probably be life changing for shift workers in the future. Things like this, like sleep deprivation is much more of a concern than what we can currently tell about a variety of, you know, uh, anti sort of sleep drugs, um, regardless. I have felt as I've tried to pay attention to sort of just how I'm living my life, I am having, or I have an inability to communicate with people who do not speak fluent scientific language. And as someone who wants to interface with as many people as possible, if for nothing else, more than my own selfish endeavor to understand the world to a greater extent, like that can still stem from a purely scientific basis. But if I can't interface with people, other people's subjective information, then I'm still uh, keeping varieties of information from myself. So um, that's not necessarily my entire reasoning behind it, but it's just, it was something I noticed in myself. I wanted to be able to speak to other people more. So I've tried to really expand my reading in that regard. Um, and additionally, a little bit, like you mentioned, uh, George Floyd. And I think there is totally um, a lot to be said about the way the pandemic sort of created that movement. Um, and I don't entirely agree with the identity politics way of looking at the world. Um, I think the world is made up of well, the world is continuous and we basically put boundaries on it. And the scope of those boundaries is, is more reflective of ourselves than anything. Um, regardless, boundaries can be useful. And the way that I guess generally identity politics sections up the world provides a useful framework for me to potentially try and expand some of the topics that I read on. So I've been trying to read a little bit more, um, by let's say non-white authors, by females, by just people that don't necessarily come from scientific background. Um, I've been reading a little bit more poetry. I have a gen, like, that's not that hard to be honest. Like that's, that would be an excessive, I'd be beating that up how much of a divide that is for me to cross. Like I've not had a large people sort of put the arts and science on opposite ends of the spectrum. And I don't think that's entirely accurate. And again, I don't think it's a difficult leap for me at all to, to value the inside of females or women or however that's best phrased. Um, like, so these aren't monumental uh, changes for me, but it has been interesting to at least more actively seek different sections of a bookshop rather than the, oh, cool science, like, or, um, but yeah, I guess, sorry, that's all a bit long winded, but it sort of just demonstrates where my thinking is at, at the minute. Uh, I recently read, uh, one of Eleanor Roosevelt's book, which was really good. Um, it's called you learn by living. It's basically, uh, sort of 11 short essays on what she thinks living a meaningful life should be. Um, I picked up. Brian Kaplan's, uh, what would you call it? Graphic novel. 
um, on open borders um, because I just think like I'm really in- intrigued by innovation and things like that as well. And like Brian Kaplan's an economist and he's basically tried to pile the like economic, scientific and moral sort of implications of having open borders into a graphic novel, sort of making it accessible for, you know, basically 12 years on and upwards. And yeah, maybe that fits a little bit in with like Lyndon's nerdish um, sort of interests. But I think the book in and of itself is interesting because of what he's trying to achieve with it and the ideas that are beginning to infiltrate that will hopefully infiltrate um, you know, younger generations who can become more informed about these, these topics. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and yeah, then just an, a massive mix of things relating to rationality, mental models. Um, unfortunately, as this conversation <laughs> demonstrated, a lot of that is sort of focused around stock market style sort of language and terminology. Um, that the stock market is, I guess, a a, uh, a very useful playground to think about how accurately we're thinking. Um, so a lot of what I read focuses around that. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty keen to get into exaltations, which um, you know, we've spoken about over message and things like that to, to throw a bit more science fiction in the mix, because I think thinking scientifically rationally critically whatever you want to to term it is not at all complete or like it's actually predicated on i think thinking expansively and this probably might encapsulate um maybe all my prior views i've laid out in this conversation i'll try and wrap it up with this sorry but like to people I think view science as this extremely like constraining. This is the way we need to think this is the way things are. But I think that's only a singular component of like a dual process. It is like, this is what we currently know, but predicated on that is that the world is crazier than we currently think it is. And is probably crazier and quirkier than we can actually think it is. And in order to even get close to that, you need to be able to have, like you need to be able to have a good imagination to think creatively and to do all these things. And I, I think fiction and things like that help us do that. And yeah, the, the idea of a creative versus an analytical mind, I think is all just relatively flawed and for my own personal goals and selfish ambitions, I want to develop both those components my ability to be objective and subjective and help speak to people, communicate science, all kinds of things. So that's my answer on what I've been reading lately. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> love it, man. Uh, no, I love it. I, you know, we share a similar philosophy there again. Like I, I, I love just availing myself to these different concepts. And I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of reading outside my field, <clears throat> excuse me, and just engaging in things that are generally outside health and fitness, because I think it actually makes me better at health and fitness too. Um, I liked the, I mean, the stock market's an interesting one just to make a quick comment on that, because of course you, you have all this second, you know, uh, economical uh, theory and that sort of thing. And then, um, you know, behavioral economics is a really interesting thing. And especially when you 
you know, originally considered people to always be rational actors in a marketplace. And of course they're not. So it's a really, really interesting area that uh, we can learn a lot from in other fields too, I think. So it's a, it's a cool thing. And you see it bleeding over quite a lot into, into other areas um, of study and that kind of thing. Uh, cool, man. I might leave the recording there and then we can sort of finish up on the other end. But uh, thanks for coming on. Um, you've got some material out there that I think is really worth reading. So if you wouldn't mind just giving that a quick plug uh, with your, you know, where people can find you online. Um, and then I'll hit uh, stop on the recording after that. Firstly, thank you for, for having me on, Luke. Um, it's, it's funny how life plays out. Like I was a listener to your podcast before we even had a chance to interact in person. So to sort of progressively become you know, closer with you or a friend, consume more of your content and then you know, be on your podcast. It's uh, it's interesting, but regardless of, again, irrespective of how that plays out for me or how that has played out for me, it's been enjoyable to be here regardless. And I think you do a good thing. Um, however, if people get, sick of you giving them all the good advice in too much of an easy fashion. Um, people can consume some of my content if they like. Uh, probably the place I would most like to direct people to is just my own blog. Um, it's www.thereforethink.org. Uh, it is where I'm trying to combine, I guess, a lot of the ideas uh, that I have uh, I tend to write really long articles. So if you're not interested in long format, um, that's totally fine. It's not for everyone. Um, but I do have, I guess, I do feel a little bit sad that people don't like reading long format blogs because like people read books and then read, you know, two minute articles, but then nothing quite in between. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, that's, that's where I like to write about things and, try and write a little bit on the the edge of disciplines like as again sort of this this speaks about the point you were making um that that's where i think really all the big problems are like once once a field sort of almost exists most of the low-hanging fruit have been solved within it so i think people need to be looking towards the boundaries the edges the corners and things like that in order to be getting ahead of whatever problems they may be facing. So yeah, sorry. Uh, that's thereforethink.org is where I'll write. I'll make tons of errors. Um, if you pick up on errors, whether it be grammatical or like genuinely sort of like something unscientific or unfounded, please bring it to my attention. Part of the reason that I'm creating is to help share what I think makes my life really interesting, valuable, fun, and just yeah I, I enjoy living so i want to share that um but the other reason is so that i can generate feedback based on what i put out it helps me learn and then i can help other people's other people learn from what i've learned um or you can find me on instagram where i appear occasionally i'll post usually a, a random spurt of stories then disappear and not reply to messages for a week or so <laughs> um that's just lyndon.j.purcell yeah, I'm the Rick and Morty avatar if you need help. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Uh, thanks a ton. Uh, all right, everybody, we'll, we'll leave it there. And uh, if you have any feedback, then please feel free to get in touch with Lyndon, uh, get in touch with me. 
and always appreciate any any shares, any comments, any ratings, anything like that.